It's great to see you here this morning. And uh, the, today we're starting a new series uh, that we're calling Words for the Way. And we're going to be spending uh, the next four weeks looking at four different psalms. Now, if you're new to Christianity, you might be saying, what, what are psalms? And the psalms is a, it's a section in the Old Testament, and uh, it's a collection of 150 poems that were used by God's people uh, for worship in the tabernacle and in the temple, but also on their spiritual pilgrimages. And uh, these are words that weren't just sung, but they were read and prayed. And so these are words that are given to us by God to speak to God and sing to God on our spiritual journey, which is why we're calling this Words for the Way. And I want to say a few things about the Psalms just to orient us, since we're going to be spending the next four weeks looking at four different Psalms. And the first thing is this. You may not be aware, but most Christians throughout most of history have had their spiritual life significantly shaped by the Psalms. And the reason is that the Psalms give us a language by which we can give voice to the entire experience of being human. In the Psalms, we find words for our doubts and our fears. We find words for our joys and our sorrows. We find words for our anger and our despair. And we find words for our loneliness and our shame. Most of our prayers, uh, someone has quipped, can be reduced to help and thanks. But what you find in the Psalms is a depth and a richness that fills out and expands our capacity to relate to God. And it fills out and expands our capacity to relate to God in all of life and in all of human experience. And here's the second thing about the Psalms. The Psalms grab you by the gut. You know, we've spent the last however many weeks looking at the book of Revelation, which lights up our imaginations. But the Psalms get down into the core of your soul and they grab hold of you. And guess what? They're often not polished and polite. In fact, they get very earthy and unsettling at times. And the reason is because the Psalms are getting everything in our lives out in the open before God. And that can get very messy. You know, sometimes we mistakenly think that relating to God is about being polite and nice. But what we find in the Psalms is a reminder that it's about crying and struggling and even rejoicing in our suffering. And here's the last thing I want to draw our attention to. The Psalms lead us to Jesus. The Psalms arose out of the history of Israel, but that history is headed to a single destination. And that is the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ. All the longings, all the hopes, all the desires, all the agonies, all the dreams find their fulfillment in Jesus and his kingdom. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at four different psalms, and we're going to come at them from a particular angle. We're going to see words for when we've done wrong, words for when we've been wronged, words for when everything feels wrong, and words for when we don't know what's wrong. This morning, we're looking at Psalm 51, words for when we've done wrong. And uh, I toyed around with an alternate title for this, uh, but it messed up the symmetry. But the alternate title is Words for Waking Up in Vegas. And uh, I want to begin by telling you a story before we read our text. So uh, when my wife and I first moved to the Bay Area in 2003, uh, we came to do campus ministry at Stanford. 
And we, so we rented a house that was near Stanford campus that had a garage. And the garage, just like many of your garages who, who have them, was where our washer and dryer was, as well as everything else that didn't you know, have a place in the house or we didn't have room for. And so one morning, not too long after we moved into this place, I went out into the garage and I noticed something very disturbing. Sticking out of the hole of one of our laundry baskets filled with clothes was, was the butt of a rat with a long slender tail that hung down to the floor. A rat had apparently tried to crawl in to the clothes, I guess to warm themselves, and had gotten stuck in one of those square holes on the side of the laundry basket and died. So I'm staring at this dead rat in our laundry basket. So I summoned my wife, uh, Mindy, come on out here. There's something you need to see. Now, what you need to know is my wife is not a squeamish person. Uh, she just, you know, I'm the emotional one in the family. She doesn't get rattled easily. But there was a freaking rat in our laundry basket. And when she saw it, she screamed. And I was like, how am I going to get this rat out of that hole in our laundry basket? And she was like, get it out. She's like, throw it away. And I'm like, the whole thing? And she's like, the whole thing. And I'm like, with the clothes? She's like, with the clothes. So, okay, it was trash day and our trash bins had already been pulled out to the curb and they were already filled to the top. So I go out there with this laundry basket filled with clothes with the butt of a rat and a long tail hanging down. I'm trying to smush it down as far as it can go. And of course, it's kind of sitting on top and I'm sure all the neighbors driving by were like, who is this redneck from East Tennessee that just moved into our neighborhood? Now, that's a good question, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that experience completely changed my wife's relationship with our garage. She never felt the same about it again because gross, nasty, disgusting, and disturbing things are in there. Now, every one of us has things about ourselves that we don't like. And we can kind of laugh at them. There's certain facial features or certain body parts or body shapes. There's particular idiosyncrasies. There's nervous habits. There's personality quirks. You know, all that stuff. But there are those times in our lives when we discover something so gross, so nasty, so disgusting in our hearts that it completely changes the way we relate to ourselves. We say something that we never thought we would say. We feel something towards someone that we never thought we would feel. We do something that we never thought we would do. And we say to ourselves, I didn't know that was in there. This Psalm, Psalm 51, comes out of a time when that happened to David. And these are words given to us by God for when we've done wrong. So with that in mind, would you give your attention to the reading of God's word? A reading from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have revealed to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you recover when you've really blown it? Is it possible to rise from the rubble of failure with more joy instead of less? Is there a way home when you found yourself lost? This psalm is given to us by a man named David who had experienced those very things. And here's the background if you're unfamiliar with the story. David was a big deal in ancient Israel. He was the king. He was the spiritual leader. And he was a singer-songwriter. I mean, that's a quite a combo there. So he had everything, you know, women swoon, men envy. I mean, this is the picture you have of, of David. But his soldiers were off at war, war. And one of them was a man named Uriah. Uriah was one of his close companions. Part of his band of brothers. And he was actually a member of his special forces unit. And Uriah had a wife, and her name was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was still in town, as was David, while all his men were off at war. So one day, David notices Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. And he desires her, summons her, sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And make no mistake, in all likelihood, this was a Me Too moment. There was an enormous power differential between David and Bathsheba. And David, when he learns that she's become pregnant... He launches a cover-up. He sends a letter to Uriah and he says, Hey, Uriah, come on home. Come be with your wife for a bit. So Uriah, getting an order from the king, comes home, but he sleeps outside his house because Uriah refused to go in and be with his wife while his men were deprived of their families. And this is a big problem for David. He's losing his cover story. And David's heart began to grow darker and darker and darker. And ultimately, he has Uriah sent back to battle. And he gives instructions to another commander to have Uriah put at the front lines and then have all the Israelite soldiers withdraw from him, leaving him all alone. Uriah is killed 
David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And then David lived happily ever after. Until Nathan the prophet shows up. And Nathan says, David, I I want to tell you a story. And the story goes something like this. David, there's this sweet little family. They don't have much, but they have a little lamb. And this lamb is cute and cuddly, and it eats at this family's table every single night. But there's this other man who has tons of flocks and herds and money. One day he gets hungry, and he says to his minions, go to that sweet little family, get that cute little cuddly lamb, and roast it for me. So they do. David, what do you think should be done about that man? And David is outraged. And he says, that man deserves to die. And that's when Nathan says those famous words, David, you are the man. You are the man. How do you recover from that? Is there a way forward from that kind of failure? Or is it the case that there is no recovery? God gives us this psalm to show us the way home after calamitous failure. And here's how it begins. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. These are words for when we have done wrong. Now, let me be clear up front. Okay, these these are not words for when we've been wronged. Okay, that'll get confusing. And we're going to talk about that next week. Nor is this like a toolkit for how you reconcile to people that you've gotten sideways with. The Bible has a lot to say about that. But this is relevant to that because it's about us doing business with God where we have done wrong. These are words for when we've come face to face with the evil inside of us and we don't know where to go and we don't know what to do about it. And I want to boil this down into two sentences that capture the heart of Psalm 51. And these are two sentences that structure our response to reckoning with our sin if we want to recover. And here they are. The problem is me and my only hope is you, oh God. So let's start first with the problem is me. Can't be said better than Taylor Swift. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem is me. You know the song, Antihero? No, you don't. Okay, the problem is me. David hasn't really faced up to things for almost a year, but now he says, I finally see it was me. It was me all along. I'm the one who is responsible. No one else. I did this. It was me. Three times in the first two verses, he uses the word my, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. And what this is telling us is the first step to recovery when you've done wrong is to say to yourself and to God, it was me. Now, this doesn't come naturally to us for any of us because we are blame shifters by nature. Uh, I have a friend uh, who his name is Mike Sherritt. And uh, I've told this story before, but it's been like eight years. So uh, you're going to hear it again. But he tells a story from when he was in kindergarten. And he had a classmate, we'll call his classmate, Sammy. So Mike Sherritt and Sammy sat beside each other every day in class. And one day, Sammy sharded. If you don't know what that means, it is a combo word made up of the word fart and another word for poop. This kid pooped his pants. Okay, hang with me. This is really important. The kindergarten teacher caught wind of what was going on and she comes over to Sammy And uh, she says, Sammy, why don't you come with me for a moment so I can help you out? And Sammy says, no. 
So the teacher insisted again, Sammy, please come with me. And Sammy said no again. Finally, the teacher said, Sammy, I know what you've done. You need to come with me. At which point Sammy panicked and he pointed his finger at Mike Sherritt's and he cried out with tears. Mike Sherritt pooped in my pants. (laughs) True story. No one had to teach Sammy how to shift the blame. He just knew it was a card that he could play. And every single one of us knows that. It began in the garden when God confronts Adam after eating from the tree. What does he say? It was the woman you gave me. And then when he turns to the woman, the woman says, it was the serpent you put in the garden. On and on it goes throughout human history. Shifting the blame is in our spiritual DNA. And you know what? We're not very good at it. We are all little Sammies. Until we encounter those moments that force us to come face to face with ourselves and stop blaming others for the messes that we've made. David was having such a moment and there is no hint of shifting blame in this prayer. You know what else there's no hint of? There's no hint of making excuses. He doesn't say, yeah, I did it, but you know how stressed out I've been lately? Nor does he say, do you realize what I've been through? King Saul has been chasing me with a spear. And he doesn't engage in bargaining. He doesn't say, look, all right, you got me, but I've sacrificed a lot for this country. Let's call it even. And he offers no crummy apologies. You know what crummy apologies sound like, right? I'm sure you've received some or given some. They sound like this. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Or I'm sorry that I didn't measure up to your strict standards. Or how about this one? I'm sorry I got impatient and angry when you did that awful, horrible, inexcusable thing. By the way, if you're ever thinking about offering that kind of apology to someone, just go ahead and save yourself the trouble. Punch them in the face because it's about the same thing. All our crummy apologies, our bargaining, our making excuses, our shifting the blame is how we avoid dealing with ourselves. It was my boss. It was my parents. It was my friends. It was all the stress. David says... No, it was me. It was me. It was me. It was my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. Those three words, transgressions, iniquity, and sin, they're like a comprehensive confession of the problem that is me. Transgressions is about crossing a line. We have a bent towards this. It's a willful rebellion in us. Iniquity gives the idea of being twisted out of shape, like a shoulder twisted out of socket. And sin, you've probably heard, is missing the mark, which involves not just sin of commission, doing what we shouldn't do, but sin of omission, not doing what should be done. And this is what David is realizing in this moment. He's recognizing that the problem goes deeper than behavior. The problem goes down to the heart. Our worst enemy is not outside of us. It is inside of us. Inside our hearts. It was me. It was me. It was me. Can you say that? Do you know how hard it is to say that? I've been a pastor for 20 years. And it is so rare to hear anyone say that. We don't say it in our marriages. We don't say it in our families. We don't say it in our friendships. And we don't say it to God. But you know what else is sadly rare? Me saying it. To God and to others. Here is David owning the problem before God. 
And what he says in verse 4 is, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now you can imagine Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, whom David had killed, saying, uh, excuse me, I think you've sinned against us too. And he had. But what David is recognizing is that there is, it's something all of us need to recognize. That at root, his sin is against God. I've betrayed him. And because I've betrayed him, it has led me to betray others. Until we recognize that our sin is ultimately against God, we'll never understand the degree to which we've sinned against others. David is coming face to face with himself. And what he says in verse 5 is, I've got a sin nature and I've had it from the beginning. Now, some of you right now, you're saying, yeah, but, you know, I haven't done anything like David did. Maybe not. Not yet, at least. But you will have your moments, and so will I. Moments when the roof is blown off and you see what's inside. Maybe it won't be adultery for you. Maybe it will. But for one thing's for sure, it will be something. People who value honesty get caught up in their own lies. People who, you know, just pat themselves on the back for self-control end up in addictions. One of the worst things that we can ever say is that will never be me. Because sin is deceptive. Its DNA is trickeration. It doesn't want to be seen or identified inside of us. And the proof is we're a thousand times better at identifying the sins and failures of others than we are in recognizing our own. Your ability, my ability to admit we are wrong when we are, without qualification, is inversely proportional to our pride in our own moral goodness. We should shudder when we hear ourselves say, but I know I'm a good person. Because that is the very thing that keeps us from recognizing what is not good about ourselves. And you know what else it keeps us from? It keeps us from experiencing God's love. See, most of the love that we experience in life is love for us at our best. That's why we work so hard to present well and curate, you know, a a beautiful self to put forward to people. But the love of God is something that we most deeply experience when we're at our worst. I have a friend who's also a pastor, and he tells a story from when he was in college. And uh, he, unlike me, was raised in a Christian home. He was a youth group junkie, you know, good Christian kid, goes off to college, keeps up his good Christian kid moxie until one day he blew it big time. Did something he, he, he thought he'd never do. Did something he thought you couldn't do and still call yourself a Christian. And he fell apart. So in his dorm room, he wept his eyes out and cried his, his heart out before the Lord And discovered his words, God was still there. And he wrote that 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 day that was the most vile sinfulness of my life was the day I experienced the grace of God more consciously than any other day. When God blows the roof off of your life, when we're exposed and we're without alibi and we're caught red-handed, an opportunity meets us. Will we come to grips with our own sin and weakness and move on to discover the astonishing grace and mercy of God? Or will we cling to our pride and self-righteousness and continue to make excuses and shift the blame? Will we say it was me or will we continue to say it was them? David says, 
it was me. He owns his sin before God and he pleads for God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. He asked God to blot out and to wash and to cleanse him. That's verses one and two. He begs God to give him a clean heart, verse eight, and renew his spirit, verse 10. Because David finally realizes the problem is me. So he's asking God to do what only God can do. And he's asking God because he realizes my only hope is you. And that's the other part of this psalm that we need to take in. How can anybody be secure enough to tell the unvarnished truth about themselves? It's me. It's me. It's me. Only by believing that there is a God of abundant mercy and love. You see, David isn't simply confessing his sin. He is also confessing who God is. He is the God, it says, of steadfast love. This is what we call a game changer. Steadfast love is one word in Hebrew, the Hebrew word chesed. And it means the love of the God of the covenant. It means God's covenant love. And when God sets his covenant love on you, he will never stop. He will never give up on you. That's part of what makes sin so egregious. It's not just breaking the rules. It's betraying his love. But it's also what makes repentance so hopeful. Repentance isn't self-inflicted suffering to pay down your debt. Repentance isn't acts you perform to, to prove that you deserve forgiveness. Repentance is melting your heart into the covenant love of God. If you, if you want to mold metal, you have to melt it. You have to bring intense heat in order to reshape it without ruining it. And it is in your worst moments, your biggest failures, your most gross and vile sins that you and I have the chance to experience the white hot covenant love of God and be changed. The steadfast love and abundant mercy of our covenant God is our only hope. And David is rediscovering this. And it's happening in his worst moment, in his biggest failure, in his grossest and most vile sin. But this is why he prays with confidence. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. It's imagery drawn from the Passover. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Because he knows He knows that this is what God does when we own that the problem is me. God scrubs clean. He makes new. He sets free. Now, did David experience any consequences from his choices? You bet he did. But you know what he did not experience? Separation from God. He was not rejected by him. That's why David prays, hide your face from my sins, verse 9. But don't hide your face from me, verse 11. Don't look at my sins, God, but please, please look at me. And he prays this because he believes God is the God of covenant love. I love this imagery here because when someone turns their face away from you, it's usually a sign of disgust or displeasure. I've had those moments. Someone won't look me in the eye and it kills me because I know they are deeply displeased with me. They're unhappy with me. But here's the beautiful thing about the God of covenant love. He doesn't hide his face from us even when we deserve it. You know who does all the hiding? We do because of our shame. Why would we ever want to hide 
from a God like this. You know, when my um, two oldest kids uh, were little, we would play hide and seek all the time. And uh, they never wanted to be it. They always wanted daddy to be it. I was fine with that. But the game never went like it was supposed to go. So I'd be like, all right, you go hide. And I'm going to count to 10. And then I would sing a little song like, where is Kylie? Where is Kylie? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to find her. Right? So it's just kind of creepy little song. But this happened every single time. Is I'm going around and it's tense and everything. But before I could finish the song, they would jump out. Here I am. <laughs> I'm like, that's no, no, no. That's not how we play this. Like, you wait for me to find you. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. Count to 10. Start singing the song again. And then, here I am. <laughs> I'm like envisioning years of remedial education for my children. Because they just weren't understanding it. Until one day it dawned on me. That every time they jumped out and said, here I am, I would grab them in a big hug and I would smother them with kisses. And that's what they wanted more than anything else. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist uh, preacher in the 1800s said, slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we can scarcely limp. And if we are limping towards him, he will run towards us. When you start saying the problem is me, you will discover he's already running towards you. What a great hope that there is in the God of covenant love. But you know, David's hope in God is for more than forgiveness. It's it's not like, hey, cancel my speeding tickets, God. His hope is big and large. It's a hope for a new heart that leads to a new kind of life. What does that look like? Well, this is what it looks like. It's the kind of life that shares the hope we have in God's covenant love. Do you notice verse 13? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. By utterly blowing it and coming face to face with the real problem, which is me, David says, I'm going to be a better evangelist. Do you know how counterintuitive that is to us? Because we think in order to bear witness to the hope we have in God, we can't ever screw up. We can't ever let anybody see us slip. Uh, We've always got to portray perfectly, can't ever fall down, need to be better than everybody else. But not David. David says, my failure cut the cocky out of my Christianity. The best evangelists in the world aren't the people who've taken the evangelism courses. And they're not the people who have all the apologetic answers. They're the people who've come face to face with their own brokenness and discovered how sweet and how sufficient and how beautiful God's covenant love really is. The kind of people who can look you in the eye and say, I thought I was so good, but then I got surprised by me. Yet he made me clean. And if he can make me clean, he can make anyone clean. And here's something else David says. He says in verse 14, then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And verse 15, and when God opens my lips, my mouth will declare your praises. Do do you want to know what the key to vibrant, passionate worship is? Here's a secret. It's not about dim lights and candles. It's not about great vocalists and instrumentalists. It's not singing the chorus to good, good father 35 times in a row. It's a broken and contrite heart. Bring your broken heart to the covenant love of God and you will find that it begins to sing. You know, there's this curious little phrase in verse 12 that I skipped over where David says, restore to me the joy 
of your salvation. And one way to look at that is to say he lost his joy because he sinned so greatly. But I think a better way to look at it is this. He sinned greatly because he lost his joy. When we forget God's tender mercies, his unfailing grace, his covenant love, we lose our joy. And when the joy is gone, we go looking for it everywhere else. And it leads to disorder and disintegration in our lives. And the main reason we forget his covenant love is because we forget our great need. David fell apart when he realized the problem is me, but he was put back together when he remembered, my only hope is you, oh God. Psalm, Psalm 51 is given to us by God so that we can have words for when we've done wrong. David made a mess of his life, no doubt. And some of you know what that's like. Maybe even right now you're sitting at the cold, hard, rock bottom at this very moment. And maybe you're wondering, could God really love me? Is there any way to recover after what I've done? And you want to know what, da- what God did with David's mess? He gave him a son from his wrongful marriage to Bathsheba. And that son's name was Solomon. And Solomon became the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. The Messiah, the promised one, the one who came to deal with the problem that is you and me. And he didn't deal with the problem that is you and me by getting rid of you and me. He dealt with it by trading places with us. And I don't know how to explain this any better than by using the TV show Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights, season four, episode 13. If you're unfamiliar with Friday Night Lights, all you need to know is this. Tim and Billy Riggins are two brothers who are forced to raise themselves with no parents in the picture. And the older brother, Billy, is married and has an infant son. And he opens a car repair garage, try to make some money. But with a new wife and a young kid, he's running out of funds. And so he turns his garage, you know, car repair shop into a chop shop. A place where stolen cars can be disassembled and their parts sold to other places. Highly illegal activity. The secret operation is eventually discovered by the cops. And it looks like Billy is going to jail, leaving his wife and infant son to fend for themselves. His younger brother, Tim, can't bear this. And so in this very tender moment, he pulls Billy aside and he says, I did it. I did it all. You did not do anything. When we closed the shop, I reopened it. You had no idea this was happening. I stripped the cars. I took the money. I took the frames to the junkyard. You are my brother. This is my decision. This is what I've decided. This is what's going to happen. Tim Riggins goes to jail for his brother. And all the teenage girls who watched the show cried, as well as a few grown men, to be honest. And you know why that scene is so powerful? It is powerful because it depicts something that's at the heart of the universe. One person taking the blame for somebody else. There may be nothing closer to the gospel on network television. Second Corinthians 521 says, 
God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me break this down Tim Riggins style. It's like Jesus says to you, I did it. I did it all. You did not do anything. It was me who cheated. It was me who lied. It was me who hated and was bitter. It was me who had the affair. You are my beloved. This is my decision. This is what I've decided. This is what's going to happen. And Jesus takes hell for you. When we say it was me, Jesus says, no, no, no. It was me. When we own our sin before God, Jesus takes the blame. And I can't get over this. And when you really get that this, is it, that this is what is at the heart of Christianity, you won't be able to get over it either. Because when you get it, it leads you to a life of habitual confession. You don't have to hide. You don't have to cover up. You don't have to pretend that you have it all together. You can run to Jesus and discover that his covenant love is more than enough to heal your twisted heart. And it will lead to wild celebration in your life. The most joyful, passionate Worshipful people I've ever met are those who know how deeply they've been forgiven. And here's something else. This can radically change the culture of any church. Because most people who hate the church hate it because they say, this isn't the place for me. But when they see that the church is a place where broken, twisted, messed up people are invited to God's table, they will run to it the moment they realize the problem is me. There is a way home. There is a path to recovery when you've done wrong, big wrongs, gross wrongs. And God gives us words with which we can cry out to him. The problem is me and my only hope is you. God is not done with us. He's not ashamed of us. He will not discard us. There is mercy. What are we waiting for? Run home. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your kindness, uh, you give us words that we can pray back to you. So we pray, have mercy on us, oh God. Have mercy on us. We pray that you would search us and know us. You would uncover the places that we need to deal with in ourselves. And that we would realize that by saying, the problem is me, we hear back that in you there is hope in which Jesus takes the blame for our sin. And you go to work by your spirit in making us new. Lord, we need that again and again and again. So would you do that now? in our hearts, in our lives? Would you press it into every nook and cranny of our soul? Would you mash it down into the depths of our soul? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.